You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, good morning to you all and uh, welcome. And for those that don't know who I am, my name is Richard, and it's my uh, joy and privilege to be able to wrap up our series that we start off the year with called Abide. We've been abiding in the series for the last five Sundays, and uh, we're going to be kicking off a, a beautiful three-part series next week um, called My Story. So look out for social media to know a little bit more about that, and we're excited for that. But today, we're still in Abide, and we're going to jump in. And uh, as a way to set up uh, today what Jesus is going to be speaking to us about, uh, through his word. Um, I want to take you back a little bit. It was 1999. I was in my third year of university, and it was a good time to be a Gen Xer. All my Gen Xers out there, the 90s, what an incredible time for uh, some bands that came out, the grunge scene, and movies like The Matrix. And I remember where I was when I watched The Matrix. Now, for those of you who don't know, perhaps somehow uh, The Matrix has escaped you. Uh, the original one, we have some uh, differing ideas and opinions about the, the, the ones that followed up. But the original one, it was set in a dystopian future. And artificially intelligent machines have basically taken over and enslaved humanity. All those Alexas and series you speak to in hundreds of years now, they're now taken over, right? And uh, they're actually using human beings as a power source. It's been flipped. They're using. But in order to keep humanity kind of unaware of their predicament, um, kind of keep them imprisoned and continue to be this power source, the storyline of The Matrix takes place in a computer generated virtual reality that's called The Matrix, and it looks like everyday life. Um, it's simulated uh, everyday life for the humans who are actually in a coma-like state in the real world. And so the real world and the matrix are two different places, but you wouldn't know that unless you are part of a small group of people who managed to break free from the matrix and come to realize what's truly happening and then go back into the matrix to free your fellow humans. So if that's totally lost you, do yourself a favor tonight, go watch the matrix. Now, in this t uh, almost iconic scene now from this movie, we have Morpheus, who's the leader of these free people that goes back into the Matrix to help rescue people. And he's speaking to a guy called Neo, which is played by Keanu Reeves. And they're having this encounter in the Matrix, and he's explaining to him what the Matrix is. And he has this brilliant line. It says, the Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And then he brings out a red and a blue pill. And the blue pill is, take this pill, you go back to sleep, you wake up, and you live like life in the matrix. Nothing happened. You keep on living your simulated life. Take the red pill, it's the truth pill, and you discover true reality. In other words, Morpheus is pretty much saying, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free, Neo, with this red pill. And uh, spoiler alert, Neo takes the red pill, and the rest is history. So what has this got to do with what we're going to be speaking about today? Well, it's going to serve as a real metaphor and a background to what we're going to dive in today. So we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 17, and we're going to read these five verses, and just... Bear in mind those wo words of Morpheus, it is the world, the it's a world that's been pulled over our eyes to blind us from the truth. So some key things there. 
Here we find Jesus praying. He's towards the end of his ministry on earth. He's about to head towards the cross. And he has this time of prayer. And he prays, obviously, in earshot of his disciples. So it's, he's praying, but he's also, it's still a teachable moment for his disciples. And so we catch up with him praying for his current and future disciples. If you are follow Jesus, Jesus is praying for you in this moment. And so let's read from John chapter 17. I have given them your word, speaking them as the disciples. Uh, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so as Jesus is praying for his followers, both current followers and down the ages, future followers, he references the hostility that um, that followers of Jesus are going to have because they follow him, the hostility that Jesus has. And uh, it's towards his mission and his message. And he outlines in this prayer two enemies um, of our souls. And, um, and the one he says is the evil one, protect them from evil or the evil one. And he then references this thing called the world. And so what we understand, I think, and get our heads around Evil being an enemy of our soul or the evil one, Satan and the demons. But what are we to make of the world? And it's so important that we get it right because we can make things enemies that God doesn't want us to make enemies of. And so let's look at the verse, this world, this phrase, the world for a bit here. In those five verses, he mentions the world at least eight times. If you pan out and, and read the rest of that chapter, over and over he mentions this thing called the world. Now, it can be confusing because he says, hey, you're not of the world, but I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm sending you into the world. It's like, huh? <laughs> okay. And so just like in our English language, um, words can have multiple meanings. Uh, for example, date. Uh, date could be a, a day and a time in, in the calendar. Uh, date could be a fruit that you eat, and a date could be a social romantic appointment that you set and you go on a date, or it can be a sign that you're old-fashioned, you're dating yourself, Richard, when you quote Matrix, <laughs> I get that. Um, so we understand, and, and how do you know what, you use? well, the context helps you. And so this world, the world, it's, it's, the world, it's the word cosmos in Greek, which we get our English word, cosmos, you guessed it, and it can have multiple meanings. Um, particularly three meanings. And the first meaning is one, creation, just simply the physical world, the world, the world of creation, the physical creation. As in John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, speaking of Jesus. Now, is that the enemy of our soul? And be careful here because there are pockets of belief that um, anything material is corrupt. Anything material is evil. And so uh, salvation is the escape of that. In fact, the great hope of this kind of thinking is that one day when we die, we're going to go to an out-of-body heaven. We're going to experience the freedom, salvation from creation. Is that what Jesus is talking about? That is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus loves his creation. And so it's incredibly important we understand, again, what the world he's talked about. So it's creation, but he's not referring to that creation that we to be anti. Secondly, world can also refer to humanity, as in John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, humanity, people, the mass of people. God loves people. People are not the enemy. Now, that sounds obvious, but again, some 
some patterns of thought is we set up people and us versus them. They the enemy. And this kind of belief can lead to fundamentalism, that we separate ourselves from what people or culture does. And if you're new to church or new to Christianity, you might find this laughable. But this kind of thinking began to divide, say, we're not of the world because we don't play cards. We don't go watch movies. We don't do certain things. We don't listen to certain music. That's the world that Jesus wants us to stay away from. I don't think so. I think the third uh, reference to world is what Jesus is referring to here. And it's world as a system, as a matrix, if you will. A godless way of life that is opposed to God and seeks to redefine what's good and true, independent of God. A godless way of life that is opposed to God and seeks to redefine what's good and true, independent of God. It's my attempt to describe this world system. Dallas Willard puts it a little bit more bluntly. He says, our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. Or if you like a little bit more of a nuanced one, I love this one by John Mark Comer. He says, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of, excuse me, rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And so when we begin to understand that this is what Jesus is referring to, it's a system, a godless system, a way of life that outrightly rejects and opposes God, of course that's going to be incompatible with Jesus, his kingdom, and then those who align themselves with Jesus and his kingdom. And so he's telling his disciples, current and now, current and future, that, hey, you're going to clash with this world. And so we're not to be um, taken by surprise. Now, later on, John, who writes this gospel, writes some further letters, and he develops this idea some more. He tells us a little bit more about what this world system is like, um, with incredible insight warning us about the power of this system to warp our desires, to warp even God-given desires and our lives. In John, 1 John chapter 2, he says this, do not love the world. Again, not creation, not humanity. He's talking about this world system or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world system, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the world system, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world's. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the essence of that world system. It's disordered desire and independence, autonomy, rebellion against God, not wanting to come under God's sovereignty, not wanting to have God define what's true, good, and beautiful. We want to do that ourselves. And maybe you pick it up because it echoes back to an ancient story, a story set in a garden where our first parents also faced similar, similar um, temptations. And uh, it tells us as they looked at the tree, the tree of life that God had, pro- had said forbidden, give them access to everything else, and said, hey, this one tree, don't. They looked and they saw it was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable for wisdom. Good for food, it sounds a lot like a lust of the flesh. Delight to the eyes, sounds a lot like a desire to the eyes and desirable for wisdom, a pride of life, a pride in my, on our own 
um, self-sufficiency, selfish. And the reason why John goes back to the story is because this is all of our story. We have all stood in front of that tree. We have all experienced one or all three at the same time and desire our last, a strong desire, craving for something that may be even good, but we over-desire it and we take it to a place that God never intended. And so John is telling us the story because it is the story of our humanity. And so uh, St. Augustine said it like this. He said the essence of sin is, a, is what's called the disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. He talked about how love that was supposed to be toward God and towards others is now, because of sin and fallenness, curved in on itself. And so we become our own gods, and we become the definition of what's true and good and beautiful. And when that takes root... Like John Malcolm says, it becomes institutionalized in a culture, even celebrated in a culture. These disordered desires based off lies become celebrated and even normalized in the worldly system. For example, take the desire for food and drink. The disorder of that becomes gluttony and drunkenness. What about pleasure and comfort? The disorder of that becomes hedonism. Money and possessions, the over-desire for that becomes materialism and greed. Freedom and autonomy over desire that becomes a hyper-expressive individualism where no one and nothing is going to tell me who I am. I'm going to define that. I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. Nothing new under the sun. It goes back to these uh, same stories, the same standing in front of a same tree. Are we going to trust God or are we going to trust ourselves over that? And that becomes the pattern. So, this is the world system Jesus is referring to. Let me underscore that. God loves humanity. God loves his creation. In fact, we're going to turn to now what he's doing about that. God is against the world system because the world system is against God. It wants nothing to do with God. It's going to be incompatible. If you're going to follow Jesus, that enemy is going to become your enemy too. And so this world system is what Jesus referred to or the matrix. If we're going to continue with that, it's the world that's been pulled out of our eyes that blinds us from the truth. Isn't there some truth in that? It's a world that's hostile to God. And so in his prayer, Jesus now gives us how are we to respond to this? What posture do we need to take if we're to be in this world, remember, he prayed, I'm not asking God you to take them out of the world. You think like, wow, if that's so bad, get us out of here. He says, mm, no, <laughs> let them stay or actually let them be sent into this world. And so let's turn our attention now to the posture that Jesus wants us to embrace to navigate this world. And it's in this word called set apart. So in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means consecrate. Set apart, it means to reserve something for special use. Maybe you have something in your house that's set apart for special use. Maybe there's a certain set of dishware that you set apart just for certain use. Maybe there's something that has incredible value for you that you set it apart for special use. This is the idea of consecration, of um, being sanctified, set apart. I remember years ago, I mean, years ago, we were at a friend's 21st, so, you know, well over a couple of decades ago. And uh, her father, before she was born, just before she was born, her father had set aside a bottle of champagne. He said, I'm going to leave this and, and, and open this on her 21st birthday. And here we are, 21 years later, and he brings out this bottle of champagne. It had been set apart, sanctified, consecrated 
for this moment. And so he opened it up and poured in some glasses and we all toasted and drank it and it was terrible. <laughs> it was vinegar. It has just gone to like absolute vinegar. But the point is that we all understand what it means to sit. And this is what Jesus is saying is, is, is there's, a, there's a setting apart of you. And there's three aspects of the setting apart. Firstly, it's the idea that we're set apart from something, from the world that is hostile to you and rejects God's truth. Twice Jesus says they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, my disciples, my followers, all those who place their trust and faith in me, they're not of the world. Twice he, he prays that. Why? Jesus is focusing more on our identity than our behavior because he knows something we need to get right is our identity drives our behavior. And if you ever want to change your behavior, you can try behavior modification, but the deepest form of transformation comes on an identity level. Behavioral scientists know this. And if you study anything about habits, about changing habits, they'll talk about the most uh, deepest way to change your habits, change your outcomes, change your behavior is on an identity level. And they use a very simple example, but I think this will have application for you. For example, uh, two people, they're trying to quit smoking and uh, they get offered a cigarette. And the one's response is, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. The other says, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. Now, a very small difference, but it can have all the difference in that regard. Because one is tapping into identity. I'm not a smoker, therefore I don't smoke. And it's not who I am, it's not who I want to become. And so for us as Christians, it's very similar in that way. Not to say that Jesus isn't interested in our behavior. Of course he is. Read the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lot about what we do and how we live. But the direction of it is paramount. Uh, because we could set up a way of saying, I do this, 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 I pray, I go to church, I tithe, I'm generous, I read my Bible, therefore I am a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Or we could say, the truest thing about me is that I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm celebrated. Uh, that's the truest thing about me as I'm in Christ. Therefore, I do these things that reflect that. I'm a follower of Jesus. Therefore, I behave like this. And so Jesus reminds us that if we've placed our faith in him, if we've placed our trust in him, we're not of that system anymore. We're of a different system. It's called the kingdom of God. We're taken out of the matrix and we understand our eyes have been opened. We've taken that red pill. Our eyes are open to like, oh, this is what life is really about. And uh, it's important for us to remember that, that our identity, the, the truest thing about you drives your behavior. And so that's a key. If you ever want to try and change behavior, try and think about what's, what's the belief behind what's driving that behavior and try and tackle it there because that is the deepest form of transformation. So firstly, to be set apart, we're set apart. Our posture as we're in this world is to be set apart from this world system. But the second is important because a lot of, a lot of times we can just stop there. We just retreat. And there are, there are denominations and lines of thinking that just stop from, it's just from, we don't do this. We're in the world, but not of the world. Maybe you've heard that. We're in the world, but not of the world. And it sounds very <sighs> reactionary. But the second part is we are set apart from the world for the world. We're actually set apart from the world system for the world. We're taken out of the matrix to be thrust back into the matrix to help people get out of the matrix. We're like Neos, taking those red pills and want other people to take the, the red pill of the gospel, the gospel of the red pill. There we go. They're together. That was corny, I know. But there we go. 
so was set apart for the world, the humanity and creation, that is the object of God's love and redemptive purposes. God has not given up on his creation, though it may be tainted. God has not given up on humanity, though we may be under the spell of evil and rebellion and sin. This is the essence of Jesus coming into the world. And so we're saved, we're set apart from the world for the world. And that speaks to purpose. It speaks to our mission. And it moves us from a posture of we're in the world but not of to we're not of the world but sent into the world. Very, I know it might sound very semantic, but it's very powerful when you begin to align yourselves. You know, and you might be thinking, is this just like positive thinking, Richard? It's like, no, this is much more powerful than positive thinking. It's truth thinking. It's thinking along the lines of how Jesus thinks. It's viewing reality how Jesus views reality. It's seeing the matrix for what it is, not just blindly going about and thinking this is what life is about. And so it moves towards posture engagement. Jesus says in his prayer, as you sent me, Father, I am now sending them into the world. So here would be a great question. In fact, this is a question for our small groups this week, is how has Jesus been sent into the world? Because yes, Jesus is our Savior. Yes, Jesus is King. Yes, Jesus is Lord. But he's also our pattern, our model, our example. That when we look and study the life of Jesus, we're not just like, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. Actually, we're to become more like him in his character and in what he does. So as we look at his life, we get to understand how does he engage with people who don't believe what he believes? How does he ask questions? How does he deal with rejection? How does he set up his life? What are the patterns of his life? Why does he retreat from the world and then go back into the world? And has he, why, when we look at his life, we're to be patterned after his life. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Well, two ways that Jesus was sent into the world that just come to mind. One is he came in physical creation. That's why we know God is not anti-creation. That's why we know that God is interested in the material world and is set about redeeming it and redemptively redeeming it. Jesus came to us not as a spirit or a ghost or a principle or teachings. He came as a person and lived and fleshed it out, incarnation. And then he came with the message about the kingdom of God. In other words, the alternative reality, what's really true, not the world that's been pulled over our eyes, the majors. But this is what the real, this is what life should be like. And this is what I'm about and all about. Are you in or are you not? Maybe two words that could sum up the way that Jesus is sent in the world is faithful presence. Maybe that's a, a posture that we're to adapt to have a faithful presence. Faithful. In other words, that we're very mindful that we can get seduced very easily by the world system. And let's, let's acknowledge that the world system is incredibly powerful, incredibly seductive because it sounds very much like the truth. You know, you might hear things like, Hey, God wants you to be happy. And so you should pursue your own happiness and no one should get in the way of you. I mean, it kind of sounds true. Like what God who loves us wouldn't want us to be happy. And my happiness would be the most important thing to him. It should be the most important thing to me. But that can set you down on a path that uh, that could be very destructive. And so it's subtle. The, these lies are subtle. Hey, like God, God knows when you eat of the tree that you, you can, you get to choose what's good and, and not good. Don't leave that to God. You can be like God. And that's what we've wanted ever since. And so faithful presence. But then there's also the presence aspect that we don't retreat, re, retreat or withdraw. 
that Jesus sat with people. Jesus sat with sinners and tax collectors. He ate and drank with them. He shared life with them. He wasn't afraid of the dark and evil and brokenness of our world and our systems and our culture. He didn't retreat from them, but he came into those and didn't get transformed that, but came in to be a transforming agent in those places, bringing light into darkness. Perhaps that's a starting point for how we're to be sent into the world, whatever your world is, your neighborhood, your workplace, your, your social settings, where you, where you play, where you study. Um, what does Jesus sending you into that world look like for you? Because when we're set apart like Jesus, we can engage and love the world the way that he loves. And then lastly, we're set apart from the world for the world. How? Through the word, through abiding in the truth. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so being set apart from the world and being set apart for the world is a, is a delicate tension to manage. Um, sometimes we can go one of two ways. And so it is a delicate tension to manage. It's a, it's a constant um, abiding in the truth that helps us navigate that tension. And so if we're going to disrupt the pattern of believing lies that appeal to our disordered desires that over time begin to get normalized and even celebrated in society, we need to go back and stop it at the lie part, which is why Jesus says, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth, the red pill, right? Come out of your delusion. Come out of being in a coma-like state. This is how the world is uh, from God's perspective or God's point of view. And so a question we are constantly need to be asking, especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus, in what ways am I being formed by the world, by the world system? Literally think of anything and analyze what's influencing your thinking about that. Success, morality, the good life, whatever that is. Love, sexuality, gender, marriage, divorce, money, freedom, rights, responsibilities. Think about those things and think about what's shaping, what has the biggest shaping influence over those categories. Because the power of Hollywood, of Disney, and just pop music alone, just by entertaining us, think about how it's shaped and reshaping the way we think about some of those categories. And so Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so the key is abiding in and living by the light and the truth of God's uh, God's word, God's truth. And so how do we do that? We counteract the powerful influence of the world or the world system by abiding in God's presence with God's people and pursuing God's purposes. Another way that we talk about this at Every Nation GTA is we talk about a disciple of growing up and in and out. In fact, our mission statement is following Jesus together in community on his mission. And so as we wrap up this Abide series, those three components, a personal approach to abiding, a communal approach to abiding, and a missional approach to abiding are critical if we're going to be abiding and being sanctified and set apart in the truth. Personal approach, I think we get. It's, it's our personal responsibility to, to carve out disciplines, habits, patterns that get us into God's truth, get us into a regular um, encounter with His truth. Think about, do this, as an, take a week and add up the hours that you spend on social media, watching TV, listening to podcasts, that kind of thing, and then put in another column the amount of time that you're engaging in God's Word. And then begin to see, perhaps, how 
that influence works, how we get more shaped by the things, the influences of culture. So there's personal responsibility. But it's not just alone, personally. There's a communal response. This has been tested, particularly in these last two years, right? There's a communal response. Being with God's people helps you and I stay and abide in the truth. That we have a community of people, like-minded people, are trying to pursue Jesus that can help us, encourage us, care for us, sustain us, be like mirrors to us, allow God's word and grace to come through them when we can't, when it's just not coming through us personally. And then there's an outward piece that we're not just reclusive and and set apart from, that we actually encourage one another to go forth into the world, not out of fear or being afraid, but because Jesus lives there, that Jesus lives in the dark places, that Jesus has something specific for you and I to do. What that is, that's part of the joy of being community and alone, figuring it out with God. And so there's a missional component where we live this out. We live this out on a day-to-day basis, that actually what we believe transfers into how we live out our lives. It's kind of like how Jesus would want us to live. And so as we wrap this up, as we wrap up this series, remember what you and I abide in eventually we will abound in. So you abide in God's presence on your own time. If you abide with God's people in community and abide in God's purposes, aligning your life to his purposes, not to say that you don't have goals, not to say that you don't have ambitions as well, but they're they're secondary to God. God has ultimate say in reshaping all those things, that we're not going to buy into a culture that's really about self, that pursues some dream of hedonistic culture and comforts and pleasure, and, and that's not what Jesus is signing you up for. He's signing you up for something far more radical, something far more life-giving, but something far more costly. And so we're to abide in that truth. And as we abide in that truth, we will abound in the fruit that that truth will bring. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.